0: Good morning, Seacoast. Good morning. Woo-hoo. I love the lyrics to that song, especially that line where it says, all of the weak find their strength, hungry souls receive grace at the sound of your name. And I just was thinking, man, how our culture seems to be so allergic to weakness. The message of culture seems to be that you have to have your act together, you need to be strong You can't have any flaws. And I feel like the more that we believe that, the more that we just perpetually live this life of pretend and self-protection and we don't want to be seen as weak. And I don't know about you guys, but that's just exhausting. It's like, I can't can't keep that up for very long at all. If you know anything about me, um, you know that I am definitely not perfect. But I love the fact that if you're tired, if you're worn out, if you feel beat up, if you feel burned out, if you feel sh- shame over what happened in the past, if you feel unclear about the future, wherever you are this morning, wherever you are, it's, uh, it's just good to know that Jesus says welcome. If you're feeling broken and needy, Jesus says welcome. It's in the name of Jesus, it's in, it's in Christ that our that we find that rest where our hungry souls can receive grace. And I'm just so thankful for that. And it's so good just to come back week after week after week just to be reminded of that truth because I need it because I forget it all the time. I forget it all the time. By the way, my name is Matt. I uh, serve on staff here at Seacoast. And I uh, get to lead our young adult ministry with our young married ministry, get to do some creative things. I also get to be a part of the teaching team that we do teaching team it's something we've been doing for about i don't know the last year or so and we get together on mondays and we talk about the upcoming sermons and i think we do that for several reasons and one of them is just it's great there's a lot of value in the collective wisdom of the team but i think the second more important thing is that if the sermon bombs we have someone to blame (laughs) to just be completely honest with you so just throwing that out there as my disclaimer for the morning But seriously, it is a, it's a privilege to be here uh, this morning to share. We're in week five of our Converge series. I can't believe it's already week five. It's crazy. Uh, we've been seeking to understand in this series what the kingdom of God is. And we've been looking, well, not only to understand what the kingdom of God is, but what does life look like when, so you think about it, what, what does life look like when the culture of heaven begins to invade and infiltrate our life? our city, our world. What does life begin to look like when heaven meets earth? And Jesus, as we've seen over the last uh, several weeks, is that he taught a lot about the kingdom. He said a lot of different things about it. And our goal is that we would be studying Jesus' teachings on the kingdom and that those teachings would inform and would shape the way that we live and would inform and shape us as a church. And so it's our prayer that Seacoast, and not just Seacoast as in the 501c3, the organization, but Seacoast as in us, as the people, the people of God, that we would begin to put the kingdom on display in our lives. Because I believe when the kingdom is put on display, people benefit. The world benefits around you and I. And we believe that uh, the more that the kingdom is put on display, that, and the more that we bec- increasingly become... With that kind of church, we will become more and more a church that reaches those who are lost and wandering. A church that provides refuge for the broken and the hurting. A church that shines the light of Jesus into the community. And today, what we're going to look at is uh, we want to be a church that also multiplies leaders, groups, and gatherings. Because we believe the kingdom of God is not a static thing. It's not something that just stays static and and the same. It's something that grows. And we believe God has called Seacoast and that he's using Seacoast in this time, in this place, to put the kingdom on display, to expand his kingdom. So I thought, you know, one quick point of clarity on this idea of multiplying and growing and stuff I've had several conversations, and I've actually asked questions to some of the the groups that we're part of. Uh, what do you guys think of when you hear multiply and and grow as a church and all that stuff? And I just w- was curious to see what they were uh, what they would say. And you know, some were just ah, that's cool, dude. Let's let's grow. It's great. Others were well, okay, hold on. When when you say that, honestly, are you saying you want to be a mega church, You want CECOS to grow? It's all about the numbers. And I get that. You know, anytime I hear church leaders start to talk about growth and all of that stuff, part of me, I'll just be honest, I'm thinking, okay, they want more people so there's more money so that the pastor can get that private jet for his mission trips to Hawaii. (laughs) Lord's really working in Hawaii there. No. Here's the truth. Yes, we want to see growth. Absolutely. And we believe that Jesus actually meant what he said when when he said to his um, disciples, and he commissioned them to go and make more disciples who make disciples. And we want to be faithful to that call. But here's the thing. We're not interested in just multiplying just to multiply. We're not interested in just growing just to grow. What matters is not just that we make disciples, but that we make a certain kind of disciple. You see, it's the type or the brand of disciple disciple. That matters. So the question is, what kind of disciples are we uh, interested in making? And I just want to simply say, we want to make disciples who are defined and shaped by Jesus. That's the big idea for this morning: disciples who are defined and shaped by Jesus. And that's where I want to focus our attention on Jesus. I want to look at a story today that I believe captures some pretty sweet nuggets about Jesus that. I believe, ought to define and shape us as his followers. And so if you want to open your Bibles to John 1, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 51. And what's cool is that over the last several weeks, we talked about Jesus, his teachings on the kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is like, you know, we've we've talked about several different things that it's like. And today, there's no, the kingdom of God is like this. What we see here is that Jesus not only taught about the kingdom, but his life and his ministry was a demonstration of it. And so we're looking at today, what did Jesus, what did disciple making incense look like in his ministry? So John 1 43 through 51. Let me read this. The next day, he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, there's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand what this story is saying and you would give us a clearer, brighter, bigger picture of who you are, who Jesus is, and how you see us because of that. Pray that you would massage your good news down deep into our heart this morning. Amen. Some of you might remember the name Matt Emmons. He was a sharpshooter, and back in the 2004 Olympics that took place in Athens, Greece, uh, Matt Emmons stepped into a position to find, fire his final shot in the 50-meter challenge. At that point, he had already had a commanding lead, and he didn't even need a bullseye to win uh, his, what would be his second gold medal. All he needed was literally something close So he stepped into firing lane number two. He gazed down at the target, which was perched 50 meters from him. You know, it's a pretty difficult shot. So he he focused on staying calm, and then he fired. And his bullet, it struck just outside the bullseye in what would prove to be a shot worth 8.1 points, which was more than enough to secure a gold medal. But then something happened the scoreboard on the target didn't register his shot. Something was wrong. So Matt Emmons motioned to the officials, what's going on? He thought maybe something was wrong with the scoreboard, the electronics, it didn't register. But the scoreboard hadn't made the mistake. Emmons had. You see, it turns out that Matt Emmons had cross He was standing in firing lane number two, and he had hit the wrong target. He hit... Near the bullseye of firing firing lane number three, he had hit firing lane number three, the adjacent lane, and so he got zero points. And there, uh, consequently, Emmons not only lost the gold medal, but he completely dropped off the Olympic platform into eighth place. Crazy story. Cross firing hitting the wrong target. It's pretty rare in shooting competitions, I'd say. But unfortunately, I feel like it happens a lot in life and in the church. You know, it's entirely possible for us to hit the bullseye but realize it was a waste because the whole time we were aiming at the wrong target. And this week, as we're talking about being a church that multiplies disciples and uh, grows, I believe it's entirely possible for us to be a church that, that does experience growth, to multiply leaders, groups, gatherings, but yet still miss the target. And so it's so important for us to know what we're aiming at, or I should say who we're aiming at. And today, all I want to do is just bring clarity around the true target, namely Jesus. I know some of you are are sitting there. You don't raise your hand if this is you. I just know you're there. Uh, You're thinking, Matt, this is church. Duh. Like, of course we're about Jesus. You know, tell me something I don't know. And I would just say, not, not so fast. I feel like it's really easy to say we're all about Jesus and still miss the target. You know, this is a part of my story. For a long time, I grew up, I mean, I grew up in the church, I grew up uh, in a Christian family, but for the longest time, I just literally, I saw Jesus. I mean, I knew he loved me. I knew he like, died for my sins. But I saw him for the most of my life, as just the moral example of someone I was supposed to follow. Be like Jesus. Do what Jesus does. And I was also painfully aware that I, I was my life fell so short of what I was supposed to be like. If I'm supposed to be like Jesus, he's here, I'm here. I, I was aware of this difference. And so, where's the good news in that? If Jesus is just a moral example, there's no good news in that. And i had a really hard time even explaining to friends and people around me that what's the difference between christianity what makes christianity unique or distinct from other faiths you know other religions they have their gurus and we have jesus and this is someone who grew up in the church but just seeing jesus as an example to follow isn't what saves you or sets you free what saves you and sets you free is believing not that Jesus is a moral example of godly living, but trusting that he is the savior and the substitute for our ungodly living. That's worth saying again. What saves you and sets you free is believing not that Jesus is a moral example of godly living, but trusting that he is the savior and substitute for our ungodly living. Yes, Jesus is the perfect example of how we ought to live but what makes Christianity unique is that Jesus comes first and foremost as a rescuer of broken sinners not a life coach for your self-improvement. To reduce Jesus to a life coach to my co-pilot to a moral example that is to miss the target. This is what Author Michael Horton calls Christless Christianity. It's Chris, Christianity without Christ. It's just e-anity. <laughs> he says, my, my concern is that we are getting dangerously close to the place in everyday American church life where the Bible is mined for relevant quotes, but is largely irrelevant on its own terms. Where God is used as a personal resource rather than known. Worshipped and trusted. Where Jesus Christ is a coach with a good game plan for our victory rather than a Savior who has already achieved it for us. Where salvation is more a matter of having our best life now than being saved from God's judgment by God Himself. And the Holy Spirit is an electrical outlet we can plug into for the power we need to be all that we can be. You know, the heart of Christianity at its core, is, is a story. And the story is of what God has done through Christ to redeem and to rescue broken sinners like us, but rescuing people he loves. And I think we miss the target when we make Christianity, we make the gospel about a thousand things smaller than Jesus. We miss the target when we make Christianity primarily about us and what we need to do versus about Jesus and what he has done. There was a pastor who was once asked, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? This is scary. Listen to this. The pastor speculated that if Satan took over the city, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tiny, tidy p- pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would, would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. that, to me, is a scary thought. So just having a full church, just having good lives on the surface, great, you know, kids are behaving, all of that. If Christ isn't the center, if Christ isn't being preached, we're missing the target. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the true target. And so what I love about this story is that it, it's filled with these awesome nuggets that reveal Jesus as the true target. So what can we learn about Jesus from this passage? Let me just read verses 40, 43 through 45 again here. So the next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. First off, I love the fact here, one observation is that Jesus didn't do ministry alone. He found and called 12 guys to, to come and to learn from him, and then he empowered them to go and to make disciples, to make out of others what he had made out of them. And notice the chain reaction that's taking place here. Jesus finds Philip. Philip finds Nathanael. And he tells him, we found the Messiah. There's a lot of finding going on. And that right there is, to me, it's a picture of the, the kingdom already expanding. I think it's so cool to think about the fact that it's, it's crazy to think you and I are here literally this morning because of what is going on right here in the story. This is the fruit of what what is beginning here. And most of us are here today because Jesus found us. He used someone else in our life to introduce us to himself and to bring us home. Another thing that I love is that Jesus uses the unlikely. I love that Jesus didn't go on LinkedIn to find the most qualified candidates that he could possibly find for for the job, he went to the unlikely, mostly fishermen all of whom would fail him at one time or another. And that is good news for those of us who recognize our weaknesses, our sin, that our failings don't disqualify us from Christ's kingdom. And being a spiritual hero is not not what qualifies us for heaven. There's actually one hero in the gospel story. It's Jesus himself. Jesus is the hero of the story. And notice what Philip says. He says, we have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So the law and the prophets that he's talking about there, that today, for us, that's the Old Testament. In other words, what Philip is saying is the one that the entire Old Testament points to, he's here. We found him. And I think that's so interesting because Again, I'm, maybe I'm a slow learner. I don't know. It wasn't until fairly recently that I even understood that the entire Bible was, was about Jesus. You know, I grew up with like Old Testament, New Testament. I didn't know how to like, what was the connection between those two? I had never, I never heard any, oh, oh, it all points to Jesus. So the only thing that made sense to me in my moralistic mindset was just, well, I guess the Old Testament is filled with people that we're supposed to be like and emulate, these These heroes. You know, be like David and slay your personal giants. Dare to be a Daniel. All that, it made sense to my moralistic mindset. Okay, I can try to do that. It's just, but the Bible's filled with messed up people. <laughs> I mean, seriously, Noah, Noah. Noah got, <laughs> got drunk and naked. And he got a Bible story. If we, we, if we were to get drunk and naked, we'd lose our jobs and be on the news in the morning. but I digress. <laughs> I'm not bitter. I just think it's our natural inclination to read the Bible narcissistically as though it's all about us. I actually heard, saw this headline uh, a couple months ago about a lady named Annie who's convinced that she is the Annie in that Michael Jackson song, Smooth Criminal, that mentions the name Annie 46 times. She's convinced that song is about herself. she She's Michael Jackson, a man that she has never met, she's convinced that he's writing a song about her life, and she wants to get paid royalties for it now. Annie is not okay. (laughs) No, we have this tendency to think it's all about us. And I think we may laugh at a story like that, but we do the same thing when we read the Bible as a self help book for our own improvement. One resource that has totally, it's helped me understand the Christ-centered plot line of scripture is the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know if you have this. Okay, anytime I teach, whatever, I I consult this. This is like a commentary to me. (laughs) Not kidding. But uh, it's so good, and I just want to read a little excerpt to you guys today. Try out for kids ministry right now. Uh, This is from the introduction. I love this. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is, it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. I love that. I just think it's great. And it's just, the Old Testament the whole time is pointing to Jesus. It's predicting him. It's pointing to him and then the New Testament presents him. And so nathaniel uh it's, so philip is pointing that out he's here he's here and nathaniel's response at this point is just completely negative can it, any good thing come out of nazareth I'm like oh dang he just ripped on my hometown <laughs> those are fighting words come on if anyone rips on your hometown don't you have a little bit of righteous anger inside you're like Pff. can any good thing come out of west virginia No, I. But I love. I had to. I had to. I'm sorry. No. Hey, me and Jesus, that's all right. Amen. No, but I love Philip's response. He just says, "Come and see." He doesn't go on and try to explain, like, hey, let me tell you exactly how something good could, in fact, come out of Nazareth and break it down in an outline form. He's like, come and see. Come and see. So Philip, and we'll call him Pessimistic Nate, uh, they make their way to Jesus. And when Jesus sees them approaching, Jesus, remember, he doesn't need to be told about a person. He knows what's inside the heart of man. When he sees them approaching, he looks to Nathaniel and says, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Which is crazy. I love the contrast that's there. Jesus' graceful response to Nathaniel is in stark contrast to Nathaniel's original negative opinion of Jesus. And I just love that this tells me Jesus meets our pessimism with patience. And isn't that what grace is? Grace always comes at the person who deserves it the least. Nathaniel, he seems a little confused and I don't blame him. He says to Jesus, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And at this point I'd be like, oh dang. Okay, if he saw me under the fig tree, he probably heard what I said. You know, that whole Nazareth thing. We're cool, right? It's a, <laughs> I mean, have you ever, I'd be, I'd be a little worried. Have you ever butt dialed someone when you're talking about them? You're like, yeah, yeah, so-and-so, so-and-so. Why is my phone on? Why? Oh. <laughs> just kidding. My brother and I used to do this thing where we would have a friend come over, and he would hide behind the furniture before our next friend came over. And then when friend number two came over, we'll just have, we'll call friend number one Jeff, because that was his name. Jeff is, behind the, <laughs> Jeff is behind the couch, and friend two comes in, and we're like, dude. What do you really think of Jeff. Horrible. And then friends two would just go on to share, like, honestly? And they'd share all of their their, fa- their feelings about Jeff. And then we'd like, Jeff would jump out from the couch. Hey! Or be crying behind there. I don't know. That was just a fun game for us. I know it's horrible. You can just pray for me. But Nathaniel is now, he's face to face with Jesus, realizing he's both known and, and exposed. And I think being known is a powerful thing. It's also a really scary thing. You know, a lot of us, I think we believe that if you really knew me, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. I think we believe that, and we live our lives guarded. We hold the relational cards close to our chest, playing it safe. But how freeing is it when someone does know you? when they do see you, warts and all, and they still choose to love you and accept you. There's something so freeing, so liberating about about being known and loved. If being known but rejected is one of our greatest fears, then being known yet accepted is one of our greatest joys. So Nathaniel has to be thinking, oh, shoot. Oh, no, Here, here we go. But here's the thing, Jesus didn't shame him. He didn't reject him for doubting Notice instead that Jesus speaks words of identity over Nathanael. Jesus looked at the guy who was pessimistic and he said to him, here's who you really are. And that, that statement of here's who you really are, that shifted Nathanael's whole mindset, his whole heart and attitude. Because what happens in verses 48 and 49 can only be described as an explosion of faith. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And think about that. The person who Jesus just described as the true Israelite concludes you are the King of Israel. I love that. I think this is what I see here is that encountering Jesus changes everything. Encountering Jesus changed Nathanael's perspective. And you add to this the fact that, that the fig tree had become a symbol of Israel and it was a place where uh, Israelites would go to pray for the coming of the Messiah. So perhaps Nathanael, he's at prayer uh, under a fig tree since that's the place of prayer. And if he was a true Israelite, as Jesus said, he must have been praying for the coming of the Messiah when Philip interrupted him. I love that. Think about that. Nathaniel might have been right in the middle of praying for the Messiah. He might have been asking God, Lord, bring us rescue. Bring us a Savior. Bring us the promised Messiah. And it's at that point where Philip interrupted him and said, He's here. I think Philip pointed Nathaniel to the true target. In the same way, many of us here are looking for hope. We're looking for help. We're looking for rescue. We're looking for redemption. And I think I'm here to just tell you that Jesus is here. Everything that you long for and are looking for in Christ, you have. The question is, though, how do we know this? Why is Jesus good news? I think the answer lies in what Jesus asks or says next. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. First time you read that, what in the world is he talking about? Well, remember how the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. And I think Jesus here is he's alluding back to a story of a man named Jacob. In the book of Genesis, Jacob experienced a dream in Genesis chapter 28 that involved a ladder that went from heaven uh, to earth on which angels were ascending and descending. He's having a dream, there's a ladder, heaven is opened, and on the ladder angels are going up and down. And God used this dream to show Jacob that he would keep his promise to Jacob and would be present with him on his journey. So what Jacob's dream showcased was this divide, divinely provided link between heaven and earth. Centuries later, Jesus, in our story today, he's referring to that story. But here, the angels, they don't go from heaven to earth on a ladder, but on Jesus himself, the Son of Man. Jesus, in other words, is the ladder. I know it sounds kind of funny to think, but I th- I think Jesus, in a sense, is saying that he is Jacob's dream come true. Jesus is the link between heaven and earth. And this is the essence of the good news of Christianity. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Notice again that in that verse, it doesn't say that he gave himself as a moral example. Notice he says he gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus didn't come down to show us the way, give us a checklist to follow. He came down to be the way, to put an end to all the checklists. And he came down to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And because of our sin, because of our brokenness, there's no way that you and I could ever climb our way to God. But the good news is that God's not up there waiting for us to climb up. You see, the symbol of Christianity is not a ladder. The symbol of Christianity is a cross. And it was on the cross that Jesus traded places with us. Second Corinthians five twenty one says God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God through Christ. Traded places with us. So as we seek to multiply and grow, make disciples, you know, my prayer, our prayer, is that we keep our eyes fixed on the true target. And that we would be people that are marked and defined and shaped by Jesus' love for us and what he has done for us. That we wouldn't measure our lives based on our performance, our imperfect performance for Jesus, for God, but on Jesus' perfect performance for us. And the coolest thing is that we get to lead others into that freedom I want to close with this story. I found this in a book that I read uh, recently. I think it just captures the freedom of following Jesus really well. Let me read this for you as the band comes back up. There's a story told from Civil War days before America's slaves were freed about a northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl, As they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and told her, you're free. With amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. And to be whatever I want to be? Yep. And even go wherever I want to go? Yes, he answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like. She looked at him intently and replied, Then I will go with you. Jesus has come to the slave market. He came to us there because we could not go to him. He came and purchased us with his blood, so we would no longer be a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ, which is the essence of freedom. And now there's no freer place to be in life than going with him, with the one who is himself our true liberty. Lord, I pray this morning that we would not lose sight of that. Lord, your love, your grace, all of that is so counterintuitive to us. We live in a world that's transactional, that we do something for others. They're supposed to do it for us, and we just work these, these deals. But God, with you, there's no transaction. The transaction that matters has been, has been accomplished it is finished. God, I pray that that truth would sink in deep. Lord, deliver us from our allergy to the grace. Deliver us from our, our self-salvation projects where we just, we want to prove ourselves. We want to, to become better people, but we but we do that thinking that it, that earns us something with you. Lord, I pray that your love, your grace would just would be pressed down deep into our hearts, our lives, and that we would be set free. And Lord, that we would be a church that multiplies disciples who know that Jesus paid it all, that it is finished. We ask that you help us see you for who you are and see ourselves the way that you see us so that we can go love the world the way that you do. Praise in your name. Amen.